If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ruth's story resonates a lot with what's emerging in the Me Too movement, which started with these stories from Hollywood, where these very beautiful, very together, very well-presented women, actresses, were saying these horrible things that happened to them. And there was a lot of skepticism, I think, because of the fact that these were beautiful women who were solvent, who seemed very together. They didn't look like victims. I think the same is true of Ruth. That was Gillian Pachter talking about Ruth Ellis the last woman to be executed in Britain. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Tomorrow night, the 13th of March at 9pm, BBC4 will be airing the first episode in a new series entitled The Ruth Ellis Files, exploring the story of one of the most famous and controversial cases in 20th century Britain. The series has been created by documentary maker Gillian Pachter and she spoke to our website assistant Rachel Dinning. So on this week's podcast, we're talking to filmmaker Gillian Pachter. For several months now, Gillian has been re-examining the case of Ruth Ellis, a mother of two who was hanged for the murder of her abusive boyfriend in 1955. It's a story that shocked the nation and had a dramatic impact on the death penalty debate in Britain. It's also the subject of Gillian's new three-part documentary airing on BBC4 this week. So Gillian, perhaps we could start by you giving us an overview of Ruth's crime and what took place on that fateful day in 1955 when she made this life-changing decision to shoot David Blakely. Well, uh, what we know as a fact is that at around 9.30pm on the night of Easter Sunday, uh, April 10th, 1955, um, David Blakely came out of the Magdala pub with a friend, Ruth shouted his name, and then she fired six bullets at him and four of them hit their target, um, and he died at the scene, uh, and she confessed her guilt and handed over the gun to an off-duty policeman who was there. Um, so, I mean, you just mentioned she confessed to this, and she confessed almost immediately. This would, to most people, make this case very clear-cut. It's, it's murder. Um, so why isn't this case straightforward? 
Well, in a way, what's so interesting about it is that you start with something that looks pretty open and shut. I mean, a woman shoots a man at point-blank range in front of about six people. Um, and certainly when I started looking at it, I thought, why is this case considered controversial? Um, and the reason is that that is not necessarily murder, not the way the courts look at it now. It could be manslaughter um, because now we because we ha because of the defense of diminished responsibility now we have a system where we look at all of the circumstances that lead to somebody killing someone uh and we take that into consideration um when we're making a judgment as to whether or not that's called murder uh back at the time of Ruth Ellis there wasn't that subtlety in the law um so really actually it was pretty open and shut to them at the time but when when you look at all of the paperwork and the evidence from a modern lens, you realize that it just falls apart as a case of premeditated, cold-blooded murder. It, 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 it really doesn't seem to have been that. Um, and it's quite shocking to uh, see the way it was investigated um, and tried at the time. Right. So if we were looking at this case today, if this was something that happened last week, what sort of elements might make it a case for manslaughter rather than murder? Well, I mean, I should say, first of all, you know, I, I'm not a legal expert myself. So I've I've just been consulting experts along the way, some really distinguished legal experts and, and detectives. And basically, what would potentially give her a verdict of manslaughter is the defense of diminished responsibility. So um, right now, any anyone who defended her, a barrister who defended her, would be looking really hard at her psychological makeup, her, what's called an abnormality of mind. So they would be, it's a very high bar, but they would be looking at, was Ruth really mentally well when she killed David? And they would be trying to unpick that. So what we know about Ruth uh, and, and, you know, what I started discovering through the documents, through the evidence is she had uh, been routinely beaten by David Blakely, her victim. He had at points throttled her to the point that she thought that she was going to die. Um, he had punched her so hard in the stomach that she had a miscarriage just a couple weeks before the murder. Um, so those kinds of things um, in the modern era, um, you piece those things together and, and they may amount to somebody being so not of, in their right mind, what's called an abnormality of mind, that you really can't convict them of murder. Um, you can only really convict them of a lesser charge uh, of manslaughter. Um, and, you know, quite often that kind of defense is invoked um, for women who have suffered sustained, a sustained period of abuse at, at the hands of, of their victim. Did corruption or negligence play a part in the outcome of a case or was it a product of its time? Well, you know, it's a really interesting question. I mean, and that that those were the questions that led me through the case. I would say the answer is both. So I think we really can't dispute the fact that when the judge ruled that she really didn't have a defense, that the defense of provocation, which was the only one that was open to uh, the only defense that was open to her at the time, didn't run in Ruth's case. He, he was right. Uh, he would have had to have wanted to make a new law to really update the law to accommodate Ruth to give her an actual defense. Um, now, that said, throughout the investigation into her crime, 
absolutely things were overlooked, under-investigated, and conclusions were reached, which were just inaccurate. Um, one of the main results of that was that the other person who was involved in her crime, um, in the murder, um, Desmond Cusson, who was her sort of sugar daddy, um, her other lover, got away with his role in it. Um, and part of what I was doing was looking at his statements, looking at what the police knew about him, looking at the evidence that I found via uh, Ruth's own son's testimony, and also just the gaps in the investigation and inconsistencies. Um, and along with expert help from detectives, it seemed pretty conclusive, although it's never been proven in court, that Desmond Cusson did have a role. And, and it was something that he was never arrested for um, and, uh, you know, went to his grave without formally, without acknowledging and, and without ever being charged at all. So, you know, and I, and I think with Ruth on, on a subtle level, you know, had, had her, had the investigation into her crime been less prejudiced, um, I think the, the jury might have been moved to mercy. I think it's possible that could have filtered down to a reprieve. Um, but she was, she was investigated very much through the veil of class prejudice. She was a working class girl. She'd killed her upper middle class boyfriend basically because he represented a leg up and he was getting away from her and she took revenge, which is totally reductive and completely inadequate understanding of her motive. It's interesting that the class element came into it. Um, one of the other things was the fact that she was this a victim of domestic abuse. Do you think if this had been taken into consideration, it would have made a difference? How were cases of domestic abuse treated at this time? I think you talked to a few police officers about, about this in the first episode. I did. I mean, it's, it's really extraordinary and shocking um, that back then in and speaking to these officers through really the 80s, um, there's a little acronym um, which meant uh, no cause for police action. You'd go, you'd be called out to a, a domestic, um, and that was just husbands and wives. And it, it didn't result in any kind of arrest or criminal process. So at this point in history, violence, it, you know, domestic violence is just a private affair. And I think even though people knew about um, what had happened to Ruth. Um, she told her lawyer, there's plenty of documentation about it. You know, it, it was not disputed. It simply wasn't considered relevant um, in terms of her motive or anything that might mitigate her crime, uh, which is absolutely not the case today. You mentioned this fellow called Desmond Cousin. What was um, Cousin's involvement with the murder as you understand it? Well, my understanding, which which partly comes from uh, what I found out from Ruth's family and the tape that her her son Andre made um, before taking his own life, um, is that he provided Ruth with a murder weapon, um, that he took her for target practice, that he was with her and drove her around on the day of the murder. Um, you know, and then there 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 are slightly different formulations that emerged. Uh, you know, different kinds of details like um, Andre remembering and saying, I, I have a gun, it's old and rusty, shall I oil it? Um, so that, you know, w without him having being charged, it's hard to know exactly what that adds up to. Uh, 
Does that make him an, an accessory, an accomplice, a joint principal? Those are the kinds of things that you only know when you actually investigate something, someone properly. And, and he was not investigated. He was really treated as, as a witness, um, but not a suspect. Um, so there, there's an issue there, which is how would that have impacted Ruth's verdict? That's quite hard to know whether the jury would have felt more sympathetic or felt that she was coerced in some way. But there's a separate issue, which is whether or not it impacted Ruth's verdict. If there's somebody out there who is has been involved uh, in the in in a crime, um, there should be a, a, a separate process to deal with that. So he he might have had his own trial. He uh, who knows what the result would it would have been. Um, but the question isn't only. Um, how would it have impacted Ruth? You know, there, there's an issue there about someone getting away with his role in a murder. I was wondering, could you tell us what you know about Ruth's backstory and her, you know, a bit of her life history? Yeah, well, she was she was born in uh, real North Wales um, and her father uh, was a musician, um, played in uh, cinemas, you know, silent movies. Um and it was not a happy household. Her father was sexually abusive um, toward her and her sister. Um, and uh, they also fell into poverty. And so at around the age of 16, 17, uh, Ruth is going out and working. She works in the OXO factory. You know, a lot of young women are, are working. It's it's um, during the war. And then the, we're not in work after that. Um but she also uh, was – she wasn't the kind of girl who was going to be happy with an ordinary job. So she, she was drawn to Soho. She she met this handsome Canadian, got pregnant, um, the soldier. He turned out to already be married. Um, so then she was a single mother by the age of about 17. That was um, Andre, uh, the, the, the boy who was living – who was 10 uh, when, when she committed the murder. Um and then as a single mother, she's still ambitious and singing in clubs. She gets bit parts and she gets a bit part in a Diana Doors movie. Um, and she starts rising the ranks of the uh, drinking clubs, which are this, uh, you know, this this quite special post-war environment where they have more liberal hours than the pubs. And you get this kind of clandestine mixing of classes and you get these working class girls and you get judges and upper class men and cops and um, businessmen. You, you you get a whole mix of men um, who are going through those doors. Um, and so she really, she made her living in that world. And what were the origins of her relationship with Blakely? So um, Blakely met her at uh, the little club, which was the last drinking uh, club where she she worked, um, and so did Desmond Cusson. So this this love triangle, which really defined the last two years of of her life and 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 led to the murder, was really born out of this club environment. Um, so you know, both of these men, David and Desmond, were upper middle class, quite wealthy, and th- that kind of toxic love triangle emerged in that environment. And then she and David developed a a very, very intense, violent love and hate relationship. Um, Certainly Ruth seems to be, have been obsessed 
by him. And I think he he certainly I don't know if he was I don't know if he had the same level of feeling, but he seems not to have been able to really pull away from her. And certainly they're in and out of each other's lives just just constantly. And it's very explosive and dysfunctional and violent. Many of the detectives at the time seemed quite interested in this idea that Ruth was perhaps a bit of a social climber. And this could possibly have been a factor in the murder. Um, I mean, is there any truth in this? Well, I think one of the things that's tragic about Ruth um, is that she she had really done very well. She'd come from a very dysfunctional family and a poor background. She was ambitious. Um, you know, she was drawn into the bright lights of Soho. And she ended up managing, you know, a club that had a lot of well-to-do people going through it. And she was the manageress. She earned a really good wage. You know, I think she was earning about five pounds a week. And she was doing really well. Um, I think what's tragic about Ruth is that because she mixed with these men, you know, of upper classes, um, she, I think, felt that maybe that world was open to her, um, that she was really their friend. And also she thought that maybe she would actually marry David. Um, And the reality is they were only mixing with her in hours of darkness. Um, You know, as soon as the sun came up, David never introduced her to his mother. Um, You know, he never proposed to Ruth. He was engaged to other more appropriate girls. Um, And so she was this you know, she, she she was a woman that, that people were, were embarrassed about. And, and so I think that, I think that Ruth was confused. Um, I, I think so much of her social life, you know, indicated to her that, that she was really freely mixing and that her class was no barrier. And yet at the end of the day, it, it really defined everything for her. And once you see the evidence of her being processed through the system and also the press at the time, I mean, it's just so reductive, you know, the heavy makeup, the brassy blonde. It's all this code for, you know, she's cheap. That's a good point. How is, um, how is she portrayed in the media at the time? It's, it's really funny about Ruth because, um, because she played the part. So she's basically written about um, as though she's a femme fatale from a film noir. You know, she, uh, the, the, the press were very excited about this this. this bleach blonde and her stilettos and her, you know, her, her, her immaculate getup and her heavy makeup. She was like, she looked like, like a gangster's mole or, you know, some sort of titillating bad girl from a movie. Um, you know, kind of an amalgam of things. She looked a little bit like a 30s silent film star. She looked a little bit like Marilyn Monroe or Diana Doors, you know, and she also looked like, you know, one of these darker femme fatale characters. Um, so reading about her, it's like you're just in the middle of a Raymond Chandler novel. It um, doesn't feel like anyone's writing about a real person. On the other hand, Ruth created that effect consciously. She she dressed like that. She was very glamorous, and she showed up in court looking like she was, you know, about to enter, you know, looking like she was entering a nightclub. She'd had her hair freshly bleached. Um, so she was reinforcing um, that idea of herself, and I think... You know, when I listen to her voice, which is this very theatrical accent, uh, you have to accept that that Ruth presented herself as this femme fatale type figure um, or this brassy blonde. You know, it wasn't just something, it wasn't just a judgment that the newspapers were making about her. What was the public's reaction to her? How was she seen in their eyes? 
what's really poignant, what I discovered, um, and, you know, what I touch on a, a bit in episode three, which um, is the period around the execution, um, is that actually just hundreds of people wrote to the Home Office uh, begging to reprieve Ruth Ellis. And when they write about her, um, it's just very modern. You think these people have a modern mindset. They don't judge her for being single, for being working class. They're sympathetic. They're concerned that um, that she miscarried close to the event. You know, they're, they're concerned about the violence that she suffered. Um, you know, it's the kind of language which wouldn't be out of pl- place now. And it was really amazing to see that, you know, having looked at how the authorities treated Ruth. When I finally came to evidence from what the public thought, they seemed to be just way ahead of the authorities. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do you think that her case was fundamental in turning around British laws about the death sentence? If people know anything about Ruth Ellis, uh, they know that she was the last woman to be hanged. What fewer people know is that the defense of diminished responsibility um, came onto the books two years after her death. And that's a defense which is still in our courts, you know, and, and it is the defense which could change murder to manslaughter and which is available to someone like Ruth, who is just not in her right mind um, because of, in her case, sustained abuse. Um, So I think that in a way, the greatest impact that Ruth had um, was that the the idea that you, you can't just dismiss this kind of a case as coldly premeditated murder. When you look at the circumstances, it becomes something else. And you understand that she's not just this cold-blooded femme fatale. She is this woman who suffered a great deal. And that adds up to something called diminished responsibility. And really, had she been tried two years later, she might have had a different verdict, um, which is very sad. That same kind of movement that we're brought about diminished responsibility is connected to the movement to end capital punishment, 
which also was gaining uh, momentum at this time. Um, and 10 years after her death, uh, capital punishment was abolished. She was the last woman to hang. Um, and not in 1965, um, capital punishment was outlawed uh, in Great Britain. What was the public's reception to the outcome of Ruth's trial? Did the case impact on people's beliefs about the death penalty? Well, I think it was I think it was a perfect storm. I mean, I think that somehow along the way, the people who were involved and also the people that were sort of spectators to it, the public, just got a kind of bad feeling. Like it's it's akin to when you feel you've you find yourself carried along by something there's a little voice in you that knows what you're doing isn't quite right and it's only after uh, after it's all over that you think, have I done something terrible? Have I been part of something wrong? And you and you you just feel that with all of the actors in 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 the case. You know, people were incredibly touched by it. You know, the the barristers, the the, the judge. Uh, you know, people were still talking about it, um, and it, it it impacted people so greatly. I mean, her solicitor, arguably, he he just didn't recover from it. I he. He was ill. He he suffered from alcoholism. He was uh, still felt very guilty. Twenty years later, um, you know, it, it, it was it, it was this kind of moral burden that people carried around, um, which I I found extraordinary um, that somehow it had seeped into the sort of conscience of you could even say a nation and really fundamentally altered it. I mean, it's it's interesting because women were rarely executed in Britain. We have a statistic that we recently put in one of our magazine articles. Um, something like 90% of women who were sentenced to death were reprieved. Um, so what do you think it was about Ruth's case that resulted in a death sentence? Well, that's such an interesting question. I mean, I think when you look at the trial, her solicitor, uh, who of course can't represent her in court, that has to be a barrister, but uh, prepares her case. Her solicitor really wanted to get her background across. He'd, he'd gotten so much of the truth about Ruth's background, which the police never had, um, and he'd prepared this whole defense. Um, and in court, you know, what actually came out was really not that at all. Um, her barrister really didn't understand women, really couldn't draw Ruth out, um, express surprise at the way she was describing abortion or losing a baby. Um, and, and she's, you, you have this feeling of, of, of a courtroom that's just diminishing her humanity. So what her solicitor was hoping is that the jury would at least recommend mercy. You know, it was a long shot in terms of the law that she'd actually be acquitted or get manslaughter, but he was hoping they'd recommend mercy and they didn't. They, they, they went out for 14 minutes and made no recommendation for mercy because the real Ruth hadn't come out. Um, and so, I mean, I, I, I think one of the answers to the question, why wasn't she reprieved when almost all women were uh, who were condemned, um, is maybe it had to do with the kind of woman she was. I mean, on, on one level, it was because there was a view that this was a coldly premeditated murder, so why would you reprieve her? On the other side of that, you know, there had been such a campaign for reprieve, not just by her own lawyers, but the the, the public, newspapers, foreign governments. 
and all this stuff about her background had emerged that was sympathetic and elements of whether she had an accomplice, um, which threw doubt on the whole story of the murder. All of this stuff had emerged. And one of the things you have to conclude, I think, or that I've concluded, is that she was just the wrong kind of woman. You know, this was a time when women were supposed to go back into their houses, you know, hearth and home, get married, make babies. And all of these women who'd had freedom during the war because they'd been working, the forces of society were saying, let's just get back to the old ways. You know, men can assume their proper place in society. Women get back in the kitchen. Uh, And I'm sure many women embrace that. Um, That wasn't for Ruth. She stood for everything but that. She was a single mother. She was working. She was sexually active. Um, She was glamorous. I mean, she couldn't be farther from, you know, the sort of domestic goddess type figure. Um, So was she, to have reprieved her, maybe that would have been seen as an endorsement of the wrong kind of woman. You know, so I think the decision not to reprieve her wasn't just about the specifics of her case. It was about who Ruth was and what she represented as a woman. How should we remember Ruth today? Well, you know, I think I think it's really interesting. Um, it resonates, Ruth's story resonates a lot with, with what's emerging in the Me Too movement, Um which started with these stories from Hollywood, where these very beautiful, very together, very uh, well-presented women, actresses, were were saying these horrible things that happened to them. And there was a lot of skepticism, I think, because of the fact that these were beautiful women who were solvent, who seemed very together. They didn't look like victims. I think the same is true of Ruth. You know, I think people looked at her at the time and they thought... Well, she just looks like a sort of, you know, cold, cool, calm, collected gangster's mole. Um, She doesn't look like a victim. She doesn't look like a woman who's suffering, you know, and look at her. She's so dressed up. She's asking for it. Um, And of course, that's foolish. Uh, And I would hope now and but, you know, it's a lesson we're still learning that, you you know, somebody like Ruth, you, you really have to look beyond the makeup and and the high heels and and the immaculate dress sense, because none of that indicates what's actually going on. It may even be uh, a defense mechanism um, for for what's actually uh, a really distressing, you know, hiding a lot of pain and a really distressing uh, life. Um, so, you know, I would I would hope we'd see through the the heavy makeup um, these days, but. Um, it's certainly a it's certainly a struggle that continues. Mm, definitely, that's a really interesting parallel. Do you think Ruth is a victim? Would you would you see her as a victim of you know a cruel boyfriend who abused her and even a legal system that may have been prejudiced against women? Well, you know, I think I think what's really interesting is I was guided a lot by Andre's insights. And, and one of the things that initially struck me was he, he was saying to Christmas Humphreys, the prosecutor, um, you called my mother cold-blooded. I believe this to be an untruth. And it got me thinking about the whole idea of being cold-blooded. Um, and I think, you know, which is this expression that still hangs around today. And I think the reality is that when you really look at the circumstances that lead to somebody killing somebody else, uh, you know, most people aren't born that way. And 
if you really, really look at them and their lives, you will see a whole lot of damage that has led to them inflicting damage on somebody else. And so I think I think Ruth is a victim on that level, but I think there are many people who are thought of now as cold-blooded killers uh, because we have our own prejudices about race, about uh, whether someone's from the countryside or a city, about all sorts of things where certain people we attribute the idea of being cold-blooded to and, and see their, their, their murders as straightforward. And um, really, most of those people in their lives, like Ruth, have been victims. I think I know what your answer to this question is going to be. Was, was justice served on the day that Ruth Ellis was hanged? I'd say broadly, no. And, and the reason it wasn't served isn't because they didn't get the person who pulled the trigger. Um, the reason justice wasn't served is because, because the law was wrong. Uh, and we know that now. And Ruth should not have been handled the way that, that she was. Capital punishment should not have existed. And the defense of diminished responsibility, which we now recognize as a legitimate defense, should have been available to her. Um, so I'd have to look at her and say she didn't get justice. However, we have to take account of, strictly speaking, according to the law at the time, uh, the verdict was I can the verdict was a just verdict, um, but that doesn't mean that we have to regard we don't have to regard ancient justice as just, um, and in this case it isn't. So I think that's just about everything we've got time for today. Thanks for talking to us, Gillian. For our listeners interested in learning more, Gillian's three-part documentary series, The Ruth Ellis Files, starts on BBC4 on Tuesday the 13th of March. So that was Gillian Pachter. And if you'd like to read more about Ruth Ellis, then you might be interested in an article we published about the case in our February edition, which is available as a back issue and in digital. OK, well, that's about it for today, but please do join us again on Thursday when we'll be examining the story of the Marshall Plan. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.